This podcast is brought to you by FormKeep. Form endpoints for designers and developers. No iframes, JavaScript embeds, or CSS overrides. Try out our sandbox mode before you buy at formkeep.com. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm Chad Pytel, and today I'm joined by Greg Pollock, the founder of Envy Labs and Code School, and now the CEO and founder of CodePop. Greg, thanks for joining me. I'm happy to be back. Yeah. So you were on uh, Giant Robots episode 49, which you could see in giantrobots.fm slash 49. And you, as we mentioned in that episode, your podcast originated the uh, Giant Robots Smashing Other Giant Robots audio that we <laughs> still play to this day in the intro. <laughs> That's awesome. So I was going to ask you about the self-awareness stuff that you were yeah. doing. So I've always cared a great deal more than I realized about creating like safe spaces for people, creating spaces for people where they can do their most creative work. And I figured that out early in the Envy Labs days where, you know, I asked me and the developers around me, like, what makes the optimal work environment for you and how can we produce that? That seemed like a really fun goal. And so, you know, I would hire people and talk to them about what made them, you know, I saw what you guys were doing with ThoughtBot and what the Hashrock and all these guys. And I started to get jealous. Like, I want to create an amazing workspace that's different than other workspaces. And it was really important to me as I did so that it was done in a very democratic way where it was very high integrity, high transparency, where people felt listened to. And I, we took input from people along the way. Um, I was a big believer always as, you know, doing one-on-ones with everybody. I mean, at some one point I was doing one-on-ones with like 18 people. It was ridiculous and not maintainable, but it's important to listen to the people who are working for you, or it's only a matter of time for your most talented people leave. If they don't feel listened to, that's your biggest red, you know, red flag. People will leave. And so um, I, real, I, I really enjoyed creating the culture. And then about three and a half years ago, I discovered there's these people out there who actually study exactly this. They're called organizational psychologists. And I found uh, somebody who had a PhD in it and experience doing it for NASA and hired her to come on board as an organizational psychologist. And it was just, I just loved everything that she did um, from doing the twice yearly anonymous surveys to doing like the strength finders type stuff to doing, you know, helping teams have the conversations that they needed to have, the difficult ones, to figuring out how you can create an environment where people are willing to be vulnerable, to creating an environment where people are willing to be honest and upfront in the truth. I'm a big believer that projects fail because people don't speak about their feelings. That's the F word, the feelings word. And most office environments don't have the openness that they need to succeed, and that's why projects fail. That's why companies fail. And so um, as I learned more about this, I just got fascinated with it. I just loved it, ate it up so much that back in December, I got uh, certified as a licensed human element practitioner. This is a three to five day workshop that you can bring into any organization at any level to help people become more self-aware and thus more open. And when people become more open, they communicate more effectively and you start communicating more effectively and you start wasting a lot less time communicating and start being more successful and projects fail less. So. You started this, you've been on the podcast before, it was uh, episode 49, and this was a long time ago, back in 2013, May of 2013. So at the time, you were still at MV Labs and Code School mm-hmm. had started, um, but both of those things were still going and you were, you were working on both of them. 
Yep. And over the course of that time, you know, you left NV Labs and you're no longer involved in NV Labs on an ongoing basis. That's correct. I've got a small equity stake in right. that company, but I'm not involved in the day to day anymore. And you've since also moved on and sold Code School, and you're not involved in the day to day anymore there. Um, right. These things that you learned and you became officially certified for that, did you feel like you got to put them in play there and now you're doing a better job or you're learning or was it to fix things that you feel like could have been done differently at those places? Yeah, well, I was lucky enough before I left to actually bring all of my leadership team through this five-day workshop. I had someone else come and teach it, and it was just amazing to see the impact it had on them individually and then the entire organization of Code School, even while still working under Pluralsight. So it was just a wonderful gift to give them before I left. So I've been able to implement some of this stuff in the current companies. That being said, I'm excited about starting the next company and bringing it on, you know, implementing more of these things from the get-go. As well as, uh, you know, I started a studio, which is a local tech accelerator here, and I brought these into there. So I run entrepreneurs through these three-day workshops that help them become more self-aware and increase their odds of success. Does that take people by surprise, or is it part of the expectations that this is something that they're going to be dealing with when they join the incubator? Well, nobody really, I I think it's undervalued. It's hard for Mm -hmm. me to communicate the value of something that revolves around you learning more about you will equal success Mm -hmm. because it's hard to see that, you know, if you're going to spend money on something or spend time, time is money, it's easy to go, oh, well, of course, I'm going to spend money on things that leads to direct revenue because I'm going to be able to see a immediate impact. It's more subtle when you have things like this where it's about brain hacking, right? And it's not always clear how brain hacking is going to help you be more successful. And the way I I often say it is you're lucky if you work for an employer that helps you become a better craftsman. You're even luckier if you work for an employer that helps you become a better human. Mm -hmm. And that's what this is about. This is about becoming a better human that can communicate your truth more directly with less words, not get defensive, know how you're, when you get defensive and what that looks like and how to avoid it. And as, as well as um, just becoming more aware of how you work and how you best work. There are so many office spaces where people don't communicate their feelings. What, what does that look like? It looks like when three people go into a meeting, the boss walks out, one turns to the other and goes, there's no way that's going to work. I know we just came to Unison, but I don't believe in it. And then the other guy goes, well, why didn't you speak up? And he says, well, um, I'm afraid uh, uh, I'm not going to get that raised next month if I speak up. And why didn't you say anything? Oh, because, you know, the boss, last time I spoke up, he acted like he didn't like me. So I really like to be liked and I I don't want to be shut down or rejected. You know, people don't speak up and that's why projects fail. So I recognize that this is a professional thing you do now and I wouldn't ever expect us to talk for 20 more minutes and have a big impact. But I'm, I'm wondering if you could, is there something we could do where you could really demonstrate the kinds of things that you work on or the kinds of conversation that you might have with someone like me that brings this out? Sure, I can give you some tools too. Um, one more example, then I'll give you a tool. So there was a somebody I was working on that had a startup and they had some junior level people and they couldn't figure out why those junior level people weren't coming to them 
to explain why, why things were going wrong when things would go wrong. And they realized like, oh wait, I'm expecting them to tell me when they screw up or when they have problems, but I'm not demonstrating the same level of vulnerability. So what does that mean? So how, what's the best way to get someone to be open? And it's actually for you to be open yourself. Mm -hmm. So they realized, oh, I need to go back next week and be open about myself. So what does that sound like? It sounds like, hey, I just want to let you know I make mistakes. And last week I, I wrote this check to this person. They totally fell through or I made this mistake. I thought we invest in this company and then it was the wrong one or we made this choice and I really screwed up and it was entirely my fault. And, you know, I, I fessed up to it. I apologized. And now I'm doing what I can to make sure that doesn't work. And so I just want to let you know, nobody's perfect. I don't expect you to be perfect here at this company. I screw up all the time. And I know you're going to face the same thing. And that makes you human. Mm -hmm. Nobody's perfect. So I would like it if when you make, you know, screw up or make errors that you come to me with it. And don't feel like I'm going to be angry or whatever. Because as long as you're learning from your mistakes and being open about it, that's phenomenal. And maybe even other people can learn from your mistakes. So that's what happens when you create these safe environments of vulnerability. People start asking for help more and they start admitting when they make mistakes and creating these great learning environments. Mm -hmm. And I assume it's not as simple as just having a conversation with someone and then providing those examples and like you need to actually then live it and carry it forward and make it part of the culture to have that. Kind yeah, of totally. If you can have a leader that's not afraid to stand up in front of the company and go like and, and to be accountable because ultimately, as a leader, you're accountable for everything that goes wrong. And everybody's accountable. So that's one of the concepts we teach is this idea that what happens when no one's to blame and everybody's 100% accountable? What happens? What happens is it's everyone against the problem instead of people picking sides. Oh, it was his fault. Oh, it was her fault. Oh, it was the server's fault. Let's spend time talking about whose fault it is and so that we don't have to worry about not getting that next raise because we can blame it on someone else. Mm -hmm. But that's not helpful. The helpful thing to do is to just start from the assumption that everyone's accountable. And that starts at the top. So you need to have work for a leader who's willing to stand up in front of the company, even if they only had 5% to do with it and say, hey, Ultimately, this is my responsibility. That project failed. I know I could have done better. Here's my part, you know, and I just want to apologize to everybody for doing that. And here's what we're doing in the future to make sure this doesn't happen again. Mm -hmm. That's vulnerable. So why aren't people more vulnerable? The reason why people aren't more vulnerable is because personally, we're built to see that vulnerability is weakness. This is from Brene Brown. If you like the stuff I'm talking about, go look her up. So when I am vulnerable to you and I say, hey, I screwed up. I know you gave me this responsibility, but I screwed up and I'm going to work harder next time to not make sure this happens again. It can be easy for me to see that as weakness. I'm opening myself up to weakness and I'm, you know, and I might look at that and go, oh, and now I'm giving him fodder to not like me or to think I'm incompetent. But in truth, because I'm being open about it, it's courageous it's courageous to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Everybody else is going to see it as vulnerable, but I'm going to see it as weakness. That's why it's hard to be vulnerable mm -hmm. because we internalize it as I'm exposing myself to be able to be attacked or cast out of the tribe. So have you seen environments where this is working really well? Oh, yeah, definitely. And what does it look like? What does it look like? It looks like less time dancing around subjects. It mm -hmm. looks like less triangulation. It looks like less meetings after the meeting, mm -hmm. less meetings before the meeting. 
because you learn how to trust the other people in your company and you're more direct with them. So you can go up to any individual person and say, hey, this is what I think, or actually be open about your feelings. Hey, I, I know you explained this to me, but I'm not quite getting why this is the right. Could you explain this one more time? And you're, you're not afraid to be open. And so what happens is your efficiency goes up by at least 20%. Can you imagine that if across your entire company, you could run them through a week-long workshop and the next week you'd be 20% more efficient because you're communicating more directly with each other. You're not telling yourself stories about what that person thinks of you or what they might think of you if you say something or having that meeting after the meeting. Oh, I don't, I don't know, Steve. I don't know if this project's going to work. Did you see Tim? Tim seemed so passionate about that. Blah, blah, blah. It's all these meetings after the meetings mm -hmm. that get in the way of you doing your best work. Let me give you a tool. Yeah, go, okay. Yeah, go ahead. All right. So, so much of the time I talk to people who feel stuck in their work situation and they're like, ah, I don't know, like, uh, I, I don't want to speak up. I, I'm not just going to go look for another job because I, you know, I, I talked to my boss once about this one thing and he shot me down and I think I want that raise or I think I want to work another project or I'm stagnating and I need something more challenging, but I'm afraid to just talk to my boss. They feel stuck. So what do you do? Well, first you have to realize that, you know, you're the, you control your own destiny and you're the one that has the choice, more choice than you realize. But then one tool we teach in the human element is something called first truth first. So instead of immediately having out with it, what is your fear? And is there a way that you can be open about your fear first before you tell your second truth? So what that might sound like is I might go up to my boss and say, my fear here is that you're going to think that I don't appreciate working here and that my fear is that you're not going to, you know, like me anymore if I do this or my fear is that you're going to fire me if I talk about this or I'm not going to get that promotion. You're not going to think I enjoy working here and I really do. But I'm really not feeling challenged anymore. And I know if I stagnate in this one position for a long enough time, I'm not going to be happy because where I really want to be is over here. And I'm not too sure how to get there. Can you help? So first truth first, or what, what else might that sound like? It might say something like, um, I'm afraid that you're not going to see a way for to do this or you're going to get angry at me. But when you talked to Tim and you gave Tim this task instead of me, I felt kind of like you didn't appreciate me or, or didn't think I was competent. What's the truth? Or it might sound like, hey, I don't want you to think that... Uh, I'm needy or anything or, but you know, when you walk in and to the office and you don't say hello, like the story I tell myself is that you don't really like working with me. Is that true? So it's about figuring those things out about yourself so you can be open. What is the fear? And being more open than you normally would. Because when you start talking about your feelings, it's vulnerable and it's wonderful and it's open and courageous because everybody has them. Everybody has these same fears. I like the idea that we have so many stories that we tell ourselves in our own head and even just that tool, that format, sort of leading with the fear or the, the truth that you believe it, as you believe it, and, and the concern that you have sort of brings that out right away. And I, I feel like if people did that, oftentimes they very quickly find the real truth behind the story that they were telling themselves in, the, in their head and offer that other person a chance to tell you their truth and how, what's actually going on. They may just be busy or, you know, they're 
yeah, I totally have problems with making small talk. And so I just don't say hello to people. That's totally something that I hear a lot. I'm sorry, you know, and I'll try to do a better job. Whatever it is, exposing those stories that we tell ourselves in our heads, I could see how that would have pretty dramatic impact. Yeah. And another concept we talk about in the human element is this idea of levels of openness. So when I start talking about being more direct and speaking your truth more often, people go, speak my truth? That's not going to sound good. Like, you're a jerk, you're an asshole, and I don't like you. But that's not, that's not actually open. Mm-hmm. That's not actually addressing the story that you have in your head or the fear that's behind that. Mm-hmm. So it's about taking a step back and going, okay, so why do I think Tim is a jerk? Um, it's because, oh, it's because he doesn't say hello to me. And why don't I care about that? Oh, it's because when he doesn't say hello to me, I think he thinks I'm insignificant. So instead of calling Tim a jerk, it might be like, hey, Tim, when you don't say hello to me in the morning, like the story I make up in my head is that you think I'm insignificant. Is that true? And then go from there. And if he's really a jerk, he'll say yes. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Right. And then, <laughs> then you find another job, right? Or whatever. But odds are, when you're vulnerable like that, people are like, oh, I didn't realize that. I, mm-hmm. I can say hello. Of course I'm going to say hello to you, right? Not, or it could just simply be, you're very important to this company. I'm glad you spoke up. I'm really, you are really important to what we do here at a company, and I, I really appreciate you. When I come in in the morning, sometimes I have my mind on something, and I'm just so focused to get to work that I can forget to say hello. So please don't interpret that. Yeah. And they go, oh, okay, I'll, I won't tell myself that story right. anymore. Or a big one that I have is... Uh because people are doing important work, I, I don't interrupt them. We have, like, I try to make a point of not interrupting people. <laughs> and so I could see a scenario where someone felt like I was ignoring them, but really I'm just trying not to interrupt them because they are important, because they're doing good work. Totally. So this may or may not be related, but why did you move on from code school? Good question. So after the acquisition, which was great, we didn't have to have an acquisition. It was just something we... We're at the right stage to entertain. Mm -hmm. Um, So we entertained sort of the acquisition and found a company that was a great fit, that had a very similar culture, that also had very good product fit. And that was awesome. And then I was able to deliver a lot of value to the people who were there from, you know, with the beginning. Anybody who was there longer than a year had a good chunk of equity. Um, and it was my job to deliver value on that equity. And so I was kind of, uh, that was my responsibility. And I was able to deliver that value equity for them. And once I did that, I felt there was a bit of weight, I think, lifted off my shoulders. Mm-hmm. I delivered on my promise. And because the weight was sort of lifted, I feel like my tolerance or being in meetings all day kind of went down. <laughs> like Slowly but surely, I no longer enjoyed being CEO and um, wanted to get back to doing what I loved, which was more along the lines of um, teaching and, mm-hmm. and building something and all that, crafting culture and creating a new company. I was ready to just get out and create a new company and do a new thing. So I did what you're supposed to do, which is I gave my six-month notice and basically worked as hard as I could those six months to create a succession plan. And there's so much you can do. So uh, we, we didn't have any job descriptions, so it was all about figuring out what my job description was, figuring out 
what those leadership positions were that somebody needed to go into fill to fill my shoes. What were the responsibilities? What were their persons like? Taking that to the company, getting feedback, taking that to the leadership team, getting approval. It was a huge, very methodical, very thought out process to make sure that by the time that I stepped away, there were other people leading. Mm-hmm. who could do just as good job and everybody in the company had faith in them. And uh, I never knew that you could do that. And again, that's another form of organizational psychology, um, working with all those systems to make sure that I was able to step away and everybody had faith in the company. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was great. In retrospect, do you wish you had done that sooner? Not stepped away, but, no. but built that succession plan and a team that could run without you sooner? Oh, I haven't thought about that. There were certainly roles that I probably could have created, which would have kept me happier for longer. Mm -hmm. And there's certainly things that I could have asked for that would have kept me there for longer. Mm -hmm. I want to take accountability for my um, unhappiness as well. That's so hard. When you're in a bigger company, it's hard to see how you can shape. You think, again, even me fell prey to that idea that Mm -hmm. I was stuck, that I had no choice. And I wish I, if I could go back and talk to myself, you know, two years ago, I would say, Greg, like, figure out what you would need to stay happy within and see if you can create that. Because I I probably would have stuck around for longer Mm -hmm. if certain things would have been in place. So what are you working on now? I'm working on the next startup. It's uh, called CodePop. You can see it at codepop.com. Our vision is to accelerate global innovation by helping free and open source software succeed. Boom. That's it. <laughs> so basically, uh, yeah, let's, whether it's finding a cure for cancer or building a colony on Mars, these achievements all require the advancement of technology. Mm-hmm. And I believe the best way to advance humanity is to speed up the adoption of the most impactful free and open source software. So I'm going to create a company that's all about empowering the code poets of tomorrow and help them be more successful. If that sounds exciting to you, send me an email. I'm building a team. Especially if you're a content producer. I need some content producers. Yeah, so th- th- I was gonna ask, what is the first manifestation of that? Maybe what is the long-term manifestation of that? Is that training and evangelism of open source? Yeah, so we're gonna pick out a couple key open source projects and we're going to help accelerate them by filling the holes in their community, basically. Mm -hmm. And we're gonna do it in a way that's very sustainable and that's at no cost to them. Um, In fact, we're probably gonna pay them for the privilege, which I won't go into, but it's just a different sort of business model that allows me to help open source software succeed by creating content for them. Mm -hmm. I'm excited about it. It's uh, nothing like I've seen out there. You're gonna create content around that open source as well, which will then generate money which can then be put back into contributing to the, that open source. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah, cool. How far into the process are you? Sounds like you're just getting started. So, yeah, I'm just getting started. And I've been having a lot of like, fun experimenting with different content formats. If you go to codepop.com, you'll see Open Source Craft, where I've been interviewing different people in the open source field and also experimenting with different kinds of video formats. And uh, so basically right now I'm building brand. I've been traveling around to a lot of different cities giving talks on how to be a successful developer. So a lot of coding bootcamp talks as well as community talks and then speaking with other people in the open source community to see how I can make the greatest impact with this new company. So building brand and building audience right now. Where's the funding for this coming from for CodePop? Me. (laughs) (laughs) How do you feel about that? 
is this the first time you've been in a position to to self fund something? Um, yeah, so I'm in this weird position where I help startups all the time that are looking for investment, but I've never taken on any investment myself. Um, it was just pretty lucky that I ended up in a position where I had a consultancy and then was able to create an educational product out of that consultancy. I tell people Code School was just me figuring out how to monetize the kind of educational content that I really enjoyed producing. But this time around, it makes sense. I'm going to take some money that I made from Code School and I'm going to invest it back into the next company pay some people from the get-go to just focus on the product and that's mm -hmm. it and yeah this is the first time i've done something like that so it's exciting i'm just starting to to interview people so why didn't you want to get additional investors partners we entertained that in the mm -hmm. beginning we really didn't need to because i would produce a code school course maybe it cost us 20 grand to put it together we put mm -hmm. it out and within two months we get back 40 and do it over and over again um so we never really needed to raise any money. And the reason why we were able to do that and make money so quickly is I had spent the prior four years building an audience, right. putting out free content out there. So we were lucky in that respect. And whenever I would want to hire somebody, I turned to my accountant and I would say, Hey, I think we want to hire someone to do design. Can we afford it? And he'd be like, uh, how much does this person make? And I'd say, uh, 60,000. And he'd look at the books and he'd go, okay, go ahead and do it. Mm -hmm. Or I'd be like, Hey, we should we raise money? We can raise money. And he'd say, what do you want to do with the money? And I'd say, uh, hire these three people. And he'd say, how much do they make? And I'd tell him. And he'd go, uh, you know, I think you should be able to do that with the rate that we're growing. Uh, okay, I'll do it then. Mm -hmm. So we were just really lucky that along the way we were sustainable from the get-go. So now that you're doing Code Pop, why are you doing the same thing, essentially, and not bringing on someone to share that burden with you? Why am I not getting investors? Yeah. I might eventually, mm -hmm. but it really depends on how successful that with get-go. I feel like it makes sense to see if I can carry it I, my job as the CEO of the company, I'm going to keep 50% of the company and I'm giving away 50% to the people who work with me. And it's my job to make that 50% worth a lot of money. And it's my job to deliver value to the people who have equity, which, you know, everyone will have. And if I take on investment, we're all going to get diluted and that's going to kind of suck. So I'm going to try to start up the company and not make that happen. But if we find a way in the first six months to scale it quicker, it might be worth it. And we might all decide as a team to then go out and raise money because it will help ha make something happen in one year that might happen slowly in three. And that acceleration can be fun and exciting and sometimes really worthwhile when you have a good recipe for a business. So we, we still might take money, but out of the get-go... I don't think it's worth it. I think it's also, of course, if I spend my own money up front and we make progress, I'm going to be able to get a better valuation in six months than I would today. Mm -hmm. Given that what your goals are with your uh, the human element things and, and how you want to, as you've said, have a different kind of company, how is that manifesting itself in the new company? Are you doing things like open book management? that kind of stuff? Well, no, I think I think the easy answer is just that everybody who joins the company is going to go through this five-day workshop that mm -hmm. I'm going to all run. So every time we hire six people, we're all going to take the time to really be more open with each other going through this workshop. And mm -hmm. I think that'll help us be more successful. It's also going to create a really tight-knit group of people who really enjoy working with each other. Mm -hmm. I'm really excited about it. Mm -hmm. It took me about six months before I missed my work family. Yeah. <laughs> like the people at code school are just the most amazing, open, loving, warm mentors and friends. 
and they all really, you know, they all really love hanging out with each other. Yeah. And I didn't realize how much I wanted that, how much I needed that, how much pleasure I got from mm -hmm. seeing that happen. It took mm -hmm. about six months till I realized, oh, what's my, oh, I really miss working around these people. I, I guess I under I undervalued that. I didn't realize how much I valued that. So I'm really excited to to get back into it. How about you? How, I can tell maybe that resonated with you a little bit. Yeah, I think that uh, I'm especially been doing a lot of reading lately, and and one of the things that I've been reading is how many people when they leave their company or that kind of thing that they discover that essentially that they didn't realize how dependent they were on the people that they worked with and the kinds of relationships they had and that they didn't have a lot of purpose outside of work. So that's one of the reasons why what you said resonated with me. Also, I think that for the kinds of companies that, that we have, it's not that there's nothing besides the people, but particularly on the consulting side, there's very little going on besides the people at the company. And the individual relationships that you have with not only the people you work with, but then the very direct relationships you have with your customers. Mm -hmm. Like life is too short to have a company that doesn't work in the kinds of ways that you have. If you, if you have a company that's not working well, that's dysfunctional, that people are unhappy, like life is too short for that. We're actually do we're killing ourselves <laughs> while working on something that is not enjoyable, that we don't enjoy the people that we work with, that we don't feel productive. And so I feel it's one of the most important things to be fulfilled in your work and the people that you work with. And if you're not doing that, then there are real problems. And that's sort of a, a north star that you can use to determine, am I on the right track, both personally and professionally? And not being afraid to talk about it and call it out when that's not the case and problem solve that problem, not feel stuck and like the only solution is is to leave yeah exactly so what's the biggest challenge right now for code pop then biggest challenge well we just started looking for employees mm -hmm. um just started to look for people who want to join the team and that's that's really what's in front of me i realized you know my my strengths are vision product and culture like in a nutshell that's my strength. Mm -hmm. And so I've realized for this company, I want to start out strong by finding someone who is more operations and business and financial um, oriented from the get go. And that's something new to me. Like I had people who gave me uh, some information around these things. And I had some people who are great at operations, but certainly there's more we could have done. So I'm trying at this stage to learn how to work with someone who's um, you know, has an MBA uh -huh. who can really help me do that so I can set things up so that I can work and just do the things that I love and sort of optimize for my happiness and be willing to delegate some of this stuff. I could figure out all this stuff on my own. I have, but I'm not going to do a good of a job as somebody who loves it and has studied it. So <laughs> I'm trying to find these people. Uh -huh. And sort of the biggest, I think the biggest hurdle though right now is also going to be finding the teachers mm -hmm. it's hard enough to find somebody who you know loves code another but loves code and also enjoys teaching and wants to join me teaching code and mm -hmm. building content and stop actively developing because they think they want to be a developer evangelists you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so correct me if i'm wrong but with both envy labs and with code school they were primarily non-remote companies based in florida right yeah, and most of this company is going to be here mm -hmm. in in Florida. I think it's 
to build some of these cultures that feel like family, I kind of feel like you have to have a local team. Mm-hmm. But I think the one exception I'm going to make is the content producers. Mm-hmm. I want to find the best content producers in the world to work for this company. And so those people are going to be remote and we will fly them here all the time. Mm-hmm. In retrospect, when you joined Pluralsight and you were doing lots of meetings and everything, was that remote with people that you weren't in the same location as? Yeah, well, most of the meetings were local, but we did have yeah. a ton of uh, a bunch of remote meetings. I mean, luckily, the company that we joined allowed us to run very autonomously. Mm-hmm at least while I was there. And so there was minimal interaction with them, you know, they, and, and they actually taught me some really great lessons, like how to do yearly and quarterly goals, because mm-hmm. that's kind of important and how to really pay attention to your vision for the company and the aim and why that's important as well. Um, and so they kind of became the board of directors that I never figured out how to create. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's also another reason why I think I need somebody more business oriented is to help manage that part of the business. Are you trying to keep CodePop small while still ticking some of these boxes that maybe you didn't do in the past? Oh, certainly. Because I definitely recognize that at code school, I felt like there were times where we too quickly hired people. And, you know, when you have the money in the bank and you have a problem in front of you, it's very easy. Oh, yeah, they've got too much work here. This person's getting overloaded. What should we do? Oh, well, can we afford it? Okay, let's hire someone. But too much of the time, we just solve problems by hiring people when instead we should have really sat back and said, what are the other things that we could do besides making a hire? Is there things we could stop doing that aren't as important to the success of the company as we might think they are? How could we figure that out so that maybe we wouldn't have to hire somebody? So I want to be really conscious about that and run a really tight ship. Uh, but to that, you know, I would love if it turned into a 50 to 100 person company within three to five years, I mm-hmm. think. I know, you know, if Code School was about at 50 people at one point and it felt amazing. It still felt like just an amazing culture. Um, it didn't feel too big. I feel like I know now how to successfully create a big company and not lose the openness. There was a lot of things that we did to do that successfully. Mm-hmm. Do you do any coding still? Only when I'm learning how to teach something. Mm -hmm. So I'll experiment with different languages so that I can teach it. But other than that, I don't. Because I really, I feel like that's where my time is best spent. If I jump back into code, it's about figuring out how to teach it better than anybody else has. Mm -hmm. And you're comfortable with that? Yeah. Why are you comfortable with that? Um. Right. I think you, so you're training your background. Yeah, exactly. Let's try to, what's, um, the, what's fear? the fear? I think most people's fear would be that uh, I'm not going to teach it right or I'm going to seem incompetent. Mm-hmm. But there's ways to get around that. So when I go to teach something, I go and I, you know, I do my research. I look at how three other people have taught the same thing, whether it's books, tutorials, and look online. And I make my best guess of how to teach it better. And then you have these people called editors, right? So if I'm going to teach something, I'm going to find myself a domain expert. This is also what we do at Code School Mm -hmm. is, you know, you find a domain expert, someone who really knows it really well, who can edit your stuff alongside you at different points. So I might write up a script and be like, here's what I'm thinking about recording. Give me feedback. Is this the right way to teach this? I might have two different editors, two different domain experts. So if I, I can leverage other people's knowledge to make sure I'm teaching it exactly the right way. 
And so I don't have to worry about feeling, worrying that I'm going to look incompetent. Mm -hmm. Given that your background was as a developer, was there a period in yeah. time where you had a fear around losing that part of your either identity or your skill set? No. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, like, that's okay. <laughs> you know, I hear some people saying that, like they, they're mm -hmm. going to get back into it. But, and, you know, I think at first I did miss the coding. I think when I started running the company and started teaching more all the time, there certainly was a part of me that was like, ah. Oh, I miss going and just coding. But then, you know, I get a lot of happiness from creating content, putting it out there and getting positive feedback. That really drives me. When I hear someone say like, you know, I tried to learn this concept and mm -hmm. read a book and did this and it didn't work, but then I went to code school and I, and I got it because you explained it better than anybody else did. That really motivates me more than creating, um, a product more than you know pro coding a product and or creating a feature that motivates me more and so knowing that about myself is what led me there so if there's if there's one thing i always encourage people like and i love asking people i'm gonna ask you this in a second um the question is what do you do better than most people and the, my answer to the question is i take hard to understand technical ideas and explain them in a way that anybody can understand um, what do you do better than most people I think that I help actually ship things better than mo most people. And what that means is breaking very rapidly being able to break down a problem into its constituent parts and realize what's necessary and what's not and encourage people to remove what's not necessary. And this isn't just software. This is any sort of thing that is a project. And then by taking the stuff that's necessary to actually uh, complete that project and then very quickly being able to remove blockers from allowing that person to be successful in that project. That's great. And why is ThoughtBot successful? You can say I just said it. <laughs> I actually don't think I just said it, which is interesting. I think you Guess, just said it. Oh, maybe, yeah. I think that that's why we've been successful in execution um, I think that the reason why we've been successful in having the opportunity to execute is because we're not afraid to have a philosophy and a belief and not afraid to share it. And that philosophy is not Rails. The philosophy is actually what caused us to say, we like Rails and therefore we want to use it all the time. That was the philosophy that then led us to make that decision. And then that allowed us the opportunity to have some success and be able to execute on different things. So not being afraid to have an environment where you can, recognizing that your opinions will always, you should always be growing and changing, but not being afraid to speak and have a philosophy and share that is really what I think makes us successful. Nice. So is there anything else you want to talk about? Can you think of any examples of how you use vulnerability in your company to be more successful? Yeah, the, the first thing that came to mind as you were describing vulnerability is from the last year that one of the most difficult things that ThoughtBot has had to do recently was recognize that, and this is a little bit touchy, like that there was someone on our team that was actually causing damage. And the process of figuring out how to solve that, and when we got to the point where we had really tried to work on it with that person, it just wasn't working out anymore, and they were really causing the company and, and individuals trouble, harm. It was very important for, once we finally took that next step, 
that it wasn't about blame. It was about really asking hard questions and saying, this is my, my responsibility. And how did we get in a situation where we could let someone do this to the company and to ourselves and myself and the rest of the team um, ask questions of each other? And essentially, I, I said, this is a mistake that I made, that we made. And the ultimate responsibility lies with me. So I, I, the first thing I did was I said that there was a problem, that this was, had, was a mistake that had been made, which I, I think was important. And then listen and say, would you talk to me about this? And I just want to hear what you were going through at the time, how you felt like you weren't heard, and so that we can try to work on these problems so that they never happen again. That's great. And I think that that's an important lesson. Honestly, I wish I wasn't talking about something where I, I really make a point of not talking bad about people when after they leave the company or that kind of thing. So I wish it was a little bit more able to just sort of dig in and talk in specifics. But that's the thing that comes to mind. So I'm just being honest as one of the mm -hmm. most dramatic and big problems that we had over the last year where we did that as a team in, in the way that you describe. Yeah, it's hard. Uh, I, th I really like the way you described sort of a taking accountability for that. And I can tell just about the way you're talking about it, about how it was not, uh, it wasn't easy. It wasn't something mm -hmm. you took lightly, which shows me how much you care about creating an environment where people feel um, welcome and able to do their best work. Yeah. One of the things that we've hit upon in the last couple of years is we use GitHub issues for the company itself. And so mm. practically speaking, someone sees something just like in one of our open source projects, if it has a, if it has a bug and it has a problem, we create an issue for it so that we can catalog it and prioritize it and work on it. And the real realization here was happened when we had some benefits changes that needed to be made because of external factors and I realized that that was no different than like a new version of an operating system that was going to come out like, and it was going to break our software, which is our company. And so what happened was we sort of rolled out that change and explained why it was happening as we were rolling out the change. And people sort of said, whoa, well, what happened to our transparency? And it wasn't that we were trying to hide anything. It was just that, you know, we were sort of solving the problem off offline mm. as a team of people who are primarily responsible for benefits. And realize, no, we could create a GitHub issue for that against the, playbook, the handbook that we already have as a company because it's in Markdown and GitHub. So mm -hmm. as we went through this process and I talked to people and learned about the problems that they were having in the background and the causes, I then, I think I created five GitHub issues. I posted a message saying, here's all the things I've learned from the interviews I've done and that kind of thing and identified the core root problems and then created GitHub issues for each one of them. And then as a team, the people who are interested signed on to those issues and started to work on them. And ultimately nice. they either create pull requests against our company handbook, or in some ways they create other change, which is tried to be tracked. And then eventually the issue gets closed. That's awesome. It's really, really neat. Uh, it can be scary at times because at any time, anyone can create a GitHub issue for anything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you gotta get comfortable with that. I think that that's when you're comfortable with that, it's a good sign that things are working well and that you have a healthy environment where people are not only comfortable with issues being raised, but that everyone is comfortable with creating an issue that's public. Right. 
So that's worked really well for us. And, you know, it's not perfect. Sometimes people feel like they need to talk with someone about an issue before creating it, which is totally okay. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You know, talk through it or draft it. That's a common thing. It's like, we're talking about it. Like, great. I, I totally understand where you're coming from. I think the next step would be for you to create a GitHub issue. If you're not comfortable just doing that, feel free to draft it and send it to me and I'll give you some feedback on it. Nice. That's a really good idea. I don't think I've heard that before. Yeah, I think it's pretty unique. And so I've been talking about it a little bit more, trying to tell people about it. Nice. I want to ask you too about um, Upcase. Yeah. So your foray into an ed tech business kind of. Mm -hmm. How is it going? What'd you learn? So it's not going super well right now. And that's in part because if we take a step back in terms of the origins of Upcase were our in-person workshops that we were giving. And we really gave those because we couldn't help ourselves. Like we like teaching people and we like <laughs> sharing with the community. <laughs> um, and so we were doing the in-person workshops and uh -huh. then we also wrote some books because for the same mm -hmm. reasons, we're not motivated by money or selling the books. It was we have byproducts of what we're doing. Like the things that are literally falling out of ThoughtBot. And I'm a big believer in something that, that Basecamp says, like sell your byproducts and that kind of thing. So that's what we were doing. And we sort of wrapped all of that up into something we call learn. So you weren't, you weren't putting these out for any marketing purposes because I, when you look more like a domain expert, you get clients. Was that part of it too? That was a happy byproduct of it, but that wasn't what was motivating us to do it. Okay. You just enjoyed teaching. We just enjoyed teaching and sharing what we do. Nice. So we did it in Learn, but then we saw what was there with Learn and we saw everything was available for one-off purchase. And we said, I think there's an opportunity here to make it more. It was actually, things were often very expensive. Mm -hmm. And so we said, I think if we make this a subscription, then we can make it more accessible to people. And that's really what was motivating us is to bring it to as many people as possible. So that was when we converted to a subscription and we felt like it needed its own brand once it was doing that. So that's when we came up with the Upcase name and, and branded that at Upcase. So nice. a couple years in, we were running up against turning that into a successful business in its own right. And the yeah. thing that was holding us back because of why we were doing it in the first place, which is it was just our byproducts. It was what we were doing anyway because we loved it. And yeah. we were, this isn't quite the right word, but essentially we burned ourselves out trying to force a business out of it. Mm. And the way that we combated that was with rotations. So I ran it for a little while, then Ben did, then Chris did. And that worked really well until six years in or so where we all wanted it to be something more, but we, everyone who wanted to work on it had sort of worked on it in earnest. So then Ben decided to leave uh, ThoughtBot and we sort of, for the last four months, Upcase has been in a little bit of a limbo where we had a lot of content that needed to be updated and some content that we, new content that we wanted to produce, but limited time that we could invest in it. So we mm -hmm. put the weekly video show on hold so that we could update that other content. And as a result, it sort of made it, the feeling that it was in limbo even worse because we weren't producing regular content anymore. So what I've been working on is finding ways that we can continue to do Upcase, 
within the context of ThoughtBot or if we need to outside of ThoughtBot, but capturing the things that have worked for Upcase and getting it out of sort of that limbo state that it's been in for the past four months or so, maybe a little bit mm-hmm. longer now. So that's the state. That's the stage we're at. Oh, okay. I don't think Upcase will ever be some huge thing because that's not what re- really motivates us. But it's painful for us to be in a situation where we want to do these things and we're not able to let them see the light because we don't have someone really championing it and running it. And mm. so, can you let us know how many subscribers you have? Uh, yeah. So I think. I don't know the exact number of subscribers off the top of my head. Sure. The peak number of subs- of total number of users was 1200 and some of the a good portion of those were companies, team plans. So I think it's about 700 800 individuals now um, using Upcase. Oh, cool. And there's a, you know, a nice forum there. There's the library of existing weekly iterations. I think there's something like 100 of them. And then there's the courses that we have that we call them trails where you can learn intermediate rails test driven rails these kinds of that's what we're updating now for rails 5 for our our latest practices that's kind of things those should be starting to some of the work over the last few months of course it took longer than we were expecting so as you're probably familiar like you you go into updating a course thinking it's going to be a certain amount of time and especially since we're not working on it full-time it's taking longer than originally expected. So what was supposed to be yeah. like a, let's put this show on hiatus so that we can focus on producing new content has turned into this four to six month adventure <laughs> of not actually having anything out. Oh um, man. So that's, I mean, that's the not so short summary of where we're at. And I'm, I, I'm pretty, I'm not just saying this, I'm pretty optimistic that we're close to the point of that hiatus being over and that log jam being clear of the things that were taking longer are starting to ship and we'll be able to then get that out so that we can resume some of the other things that we had put in uh, on hold. Right. So you don't see Upcase as a distraction because teaching is built into your culture. Yeah. If anything, we want to do it more, but we also are doing a better job of running the consulting company than we've ever run. So it's taking time away from Upcase that we would traditionally have had to put on Upcase. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of moving Upcase forward is figuring out how we structure things so that we do have the time for Upcase, even when the consulting company is running really well. And that's probably going to be bringing on someone to focus exclusively on Upcase. Okay. And I have to ask, like, were there any particular marketing strategies that you found successful, like really successful to bring in subscribers? Very early on from the beginning, we've never produced beginner content because we, it wasn't what was motivating us to be everything to everybody. It was, we want to do what we have to contribute uniquely and what we can be the best at. Yeah, and yeah. so we didn't produce beginner content. It was content essentially that we would want ourselves as intermediate and advanced developers. Mm-hmm. And so our most successful marketing has been to the existing base of people who are already paying attention to us through our blog, through the podcasts, that kind of thing, because those people are ready to want to maintain their skills and want to learn new things, but are already working experienced developers and want to be part of our community that has been the most effective for us cool through your blog and what else podcasts and 
some limited partnerships with people. So whether it be the um, joint thing that we did with Ruby Tapas or um, the other thing that's been work- worked well in the past is specifically work with a content expert to do something new. So like we just did some videos with Drew Neal around Vim and NeoVim. And when that happens, when we do that, when we announce that, it brings in new new people. Okay. And when you do videos like that with a content producer, do you pay them a fixed rate or a royalty? It depends. Um, some are fixed rate, some are royalty. Okay. Um, I think nowadays we're preferring fixed. Makes it simpler. It makes it simpler. Also, in theory, there's more upside for us, but it's really not about that. So it is about the simplicity because we don't have we don't have anyone who's like keeping track of royalties and doing payouts and that kind of thing. So if we can avoid that, it's better. Have you ever explored syndicating this onto other content networks? Not seriously, but it's been something that's been mentioned before as we've thought about the reasons why we do Upcase and thinking, well, what if we not even syndicated, but just partnered with someone where when we're doing things that we feel are valuable to contribute, they go to Pluralsight or something like that. Yeah, I I really feel like um, most people don't realize how viable of an option that is, especially teachers. They do their own thing. They're like, it's got to be on my website. But putting content on other people's websites and syndicating it, you're going to get paid. And it gives you access to an audience that you likely will not have access to otherwise. And it also builds your brand because your brand's going to be in there. And it also can even drive people back to your other website and maybe they become subscribers too. But it doesn't matter because if you've got good, relevant content, like dive into NeoVim, mm-hmm. you know, like it behooves you to put it everywhere on the internet you possibly can and get paid for it. There's very little downside. What little downside there is because people aren't coming to your subscription, I don't think you're going to lose that many people. I really don't. Yeah, especially since the people who do come to Upcase, what we hear is it's not a large contingent, but it is some contingent of it's really about being part of the ThoughtBot community and supporting Mm -hmm. us just as much (laughs) as it is about the actual (laughs) content. That's what I want to hear. <laughs> that's like, that's like, yes, the new startup uh, has some assumptions that are right along those lines. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. I really wish you the best of luck. You probably don't need it. I feel like based on the lessons that you've learned, you're setting yourself up for success. But I do wish you the best of luck. Thanks. I really appreciate it. And thanks for your time. If people want to get in touch with you, like you said, whether they're interested in the position or just want to follow you, what's the best way to do those things? Yeah, so you can either go to my blog, gregpollock.com. I occasionally blog on there about what I'm up to, join my mailing list. Um, I send out an email like once a month about stuff I've created. Also, you can just follow me at uh, Greg Pollock on Twitter. And also, you know, if you are a founder like yourself that really is looking for a um, three to five day workshop that will improve your efficiency by 20%, definitely get in touch because I I really enjoy working with uh, and teaching this stuff and it would be fun to find a few more companies that are willing to to make the time to uh, be more successful. Cool. Yeah, one last thing before we go, I wanted to tell you about a panel discussion that I'm participating in. If you're in the London area on Wednesday, the 26th of July, we're uh, doing a panel discussion on the developer's path. So how companies and developers can work together to achieve growth, supporting and growing uh, junior and senior developers alike. So you can find out more about that event and register at tbot.io slash path. And we'll link it up in the show notes as well. 
And that about does it for another episode of Giant Robots Smashing Another Giant Robots podcast. You can find show notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm slash 245. I'm Chad Pytel. This episode was recorded and produced by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening.